Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Sea Gold by John Blaine. Chapter 3 The Sea Mine Scotty thrust his head into Rick's room. You about ready? Almost, Rick said. Rick's room adjoined Scotty's, but where Scotty's room brought to mind the neat efficiency of a marine squad room, Rick's was reminiscent of a laboratory. Along one wall ran a wide shelf containing various tools and jars of electrical parts. What appeared to be partially dismantled radio sets were here and there about the room, but the intricate unit wired to an ancient alarm clock that rested by the window, for instance, was a device that automatically lowered the window and turned on the radiator during cold weather. The old leather armchair that seemed to be a repository for junk actually was wired so that Rick could turn on his radio, choose his station, adjust his reading lamp, cook a hamburger, whip up a milkshake, or answer the phone, all without moving more than a hand, or perhaps both. Rick took a last look around to be sure he had packed all he needed. Then he snapped his suitcase shut. They had already had breakfast and had said goodbye to the family. It was understood that if they got jobs, they would telegraph, and the family would not expect them home until the following weekend. Mrs. Brandt had been upset about the mysterious telegram, but it was typical of Hartson Brandt that he had been as curious as the boys about its origin. Instead of using the message as a reason for forbidding them to go to Crayville, he had contented himself with a warning and a request that they let him know if they discovered the sender. Then he had lent them enough money to last until they got their first paychecks, if they were hired. As they went down the back stairs and across the orchard to the cub, Rick spoke his thoughts out loud. I wonder what we're walking into. I'm still in a fog about that telegram last night. It's a dead cinch that Douglas Chambers didn't send it, because he doesn't know me from beans and neither does Mr. Galt. So who did? No one else saw us except the men in the restaurant, and they didn't look smart enough to write their names, much less send phony telegrams. Well, what about that character at the plant gate? Well, I thought of him, but I know I've never seen him before. I couldn't forget a face like that. It looked like something carved out of ivory soap. We'll find out, Scotty prophesized. Let's get there, though, huh? Okay, Rick said. You fly. A few more hours in your logbook and you'll be able to get a license. Dismal has a license, Scotty grinned, and he didn't have to learn to fly to get it either. Yeah, he'd better stop taking so much license with skunks, Rick retorted. I don't know which is worse, skunk fumes or your gags. Those jokes were good enough for my father and grandfather, Scotty replied with dignity. They're good enough for me. Moss and all, Rick said. Get in, fly boy. I'll spin the prop for you. In a short while, the rough oval of Spindrift Island fell away below them, and they headed north along the New Jersey coast. Headwind this morning, Rick said. It'll take us a while to get there. True to his prediction, it was almost two hours before Crayville came up on the horizon. The town sparkled in the morning sunlight as they banked over it, heading for the packed strip of beach. It looked very pretty from the air. Rick took a closer look at the sea mine. It was a rectangle, long sides formed by the waterfront and the road. Within the rectangle, which was outlined, except on the water, by a high board fence, the various buildings were roughly arranged like the ten spot on a pack of cards laid out on its side. The upper row of four and the center row of two were the tanks they had noticed yesterday. 
On a closer look, they seemed to be lined with silver, but it was probably nickel or chrome plating. On the lower side of the imaginary tent spot, fronting on the sea, was another row of four units. The two on the left were the domes. The two on the right were square, concrete buildings. And to carry out the playing card picture completely, in the upper right-hand corner was a Quonset hut, right where the numeral 10 would be. In the lower left-hand corner was a small concrete and wooden structure and a small pier that extended into the water. A motorboat was tied to the pier. Spoiling the symmetry of the ten-spot design was a solitary building, also of concrete, that nestled against the high board fence on the right-hand side. The only other important feature was a huge conduit of some sort that extended out into the sea from the concrete and wood building in the lower left-hand corner. The strip of beach on which they had landed was to the left side of the plant, about 200 yards from the sea mine fence. Scotty made a smooth landing on the beach, and the boys got out. We can leave the plane right here, Rick said. The tide doesn't come up this high. He pointed to the line of seaweed, driftwood, and other flotsam that indicated the high water mark. We better drag up a couple of logs and tie it down, though, Scotty suggested. There's some driftwood that'll do. They went to work pulling the driftwood into place and tying the plane to the logs. We'll have to find an airport where we can refuel, Rick said. Let's do that this afternoon. You talk as though we already had jobs, Scotty grinned. He reached in behind the plane seats and brought out the electric alarm. Oh, they'll hire us, Rick said confidently as they planted the stakes and strung the alarm wire. As they started for the road, Rick asked, Are you nervous? Who, me? Scotty retorted, and then surprisingly he said, Yeah. Well, try to look intelligent, Rick advised laughing. They reached the road and walked along by the high board fence toward the gate. They could see that the sea mine plant gate was now open and quickened their stride. I'll tell them how to drill holes in water, Scotty grinned. That should convince them. They paused at the gate looking in curiously. There didn't seem to be much activity. Then Rick saw the Quonset hut was issuing smoke from a length of pipe in the roof. Let's try there, he suggested. They walked in through the gate, and Scotty pointed to two young men who were talking at the opposite end of the hut. Looks like our people. Rick sized them up and decided that he liked what he saw. They were his own height, and quite young, somewhere in their mid-twenties, he guessed. One had dark hair and wore glasses. He was dressed in khaki shorts, the other was blonde and wore whipcord breeches. He was smoking a pipe almost as big as a closed fist. Good morning, Rick said when they reached the two young men. We're looking for Mr. Chambers. I'm Chambers, the dark-haired man replied, and this is my partner, Tom Blakely. He indicated the blonde man in the whipcord breeches. Rick introduced himself and Scotty, and they shook hands all around. The partners seemed to be good fellows. Rick took a telegram message from his pocket and handed it to Douglas Chambers. This is a wire that was telephoned to me. Did you send it by any chance, sir? Chambers read it and his eyebrows went up. No. He handed it to Tom Blakely. What's the story? Rick rapidly outlined yesterday's events and Chambers' puzzled look deepened. I can't imagine who sent this telegram. As for the man you saw at the gate, he probably was just curious about what was inside. I don't know why he should have run away. So you boys want to work here? 
Tom Blakely asked. Well, we're pretty handy with tools, Rick replied. We might be able to make ourselves useful. Is that your plane that just buzzed us? Yes. A couple of junior birdmen, Doug. Let's hire them. Having our hired hands come to work in a mechanized kite will give this place some class. Rick looked sharply at Blakely and met a pair of twinkling eyes. He grinned back. Then Tom Blakely's glance went to Scotty and inspected him carefully and came to rest on the honorable discharge pin in his jacket lapel. What service? asked Tom. Marine, sir, Scotty replied. An ex-Marine, as I hope to grow old quietly. I always felt kindly toward those seagoing bellhops. Junior CBs, we used to call them. Scotty's eyes were on the button in Tom's lapel. We always used to say never hit a poor old CB. He might have a son in the Marines. Well, those two have made friends, Douglas Chambers said to Rick dryly. Come into our humble parlor, fellows. We'll sign the deal. The interior of the Quonset hut was set up as a combination office, bedroom, and kitchen. Coffee was perking on an oil stove, and the place had a rough but homelike air. Do you live here? Rick asked in amazement. For the time being, Chambers answered. You must have come yesterday while we were off getting a decent meal in New Haven. Tom is a worse cook than I am, and I'm pretty awful. Amen, Tom said. He winked at Rick. I only give him heartburn, but he gives me a cute framus of the slobbin' globbin'. Incidentally, where do you boys come from? Spindrift Island, Scotty answered. That's in New Jersey, just south of... I know where it is, Chambers said quickly. He looked at Brick. You said your name was Brant, and you come from Spindrift. That makes you some relative of Hearts and Brant's, right? He's my father, Rick said. Someday I want to meet your father. Do you ever help out in the lab? I mean, can you handle a soldering iron, stuff like that? Sure, Dad lets me help out with the wiring. Swell. Chambers gave the kitchen table a resounding smack. That takes a big headache off my shoulders. Tom here doesn't know a triode tube from a Tripoli pirate. I've been needing somebody to help me with wiring. What can I do? Scotty asked. Can you keep books? Tom queried. Scotty shook his head. No help from me. Tom sighed, then explained. Doug is our technical brains. I'm just a hired hand who keeps the books. Anyway, we'll find plenty for you to do, Scotty. Can you run a motorboat? Drive a truck? Yep, to all except the shovel, Scotty grinned. Not very good at complicated tools. You're not operating yet, Rick commented. It was more of a statement than a question. We will be, Tom replied, in about two weeks if all goes well. If, Doug echoed. There's a lot of ifs. Workmen, for one thing. We found it harder and harder to get Crayville people to work for us. Now we know why, thanks to your visit yesterday. Of course, it's a lot of hoopla about poisoning the fish. A shadow blocked the doorway. Rick looked up to see a dark-complexioned man staring at him and Scotty. The newcomer was of medium build with a look of hardness about him. He had a tight mouth and piercing black eyes. Oh, Tony, Doug said. Come on in. Meet our two new men. Rick Brandt and Don Scott. Boys, this is Tony Larzo, our foreman. How do, Tony said shortly. He had an odd habit of squinting when he talked, 
and Rick got the impression he wasn't particularly pleased to see him. But perhaps that just was part of his sour disposition. You'll want to get squared away before you go to work, Tom Blakely remarked. If you're in need of a place to live, I can recommend the mansion house. We'll try it, Rick nodded. Come back this afternoon and look the plant over. You can start on the payroll in the morning. As for salary, Doug named a figure that suited the boys perfectly. They shook hands all around and then hiked back to the cub. We're in, Scotty exulted. Easy as pie. I like them both, Rick said. We should have a lot of fun working here. Unless whoever doesn't want us around decides to make things tough. That had been at the back of Rick's mind, too. Check, but let's not borrow trouble. In a little while, they were pushing open the door of the mansion house, bags in hand. They stepped into a clean but threadbare lobby in which the principal decorations seemed to be seashells. I hope the beds are more modern than that, Scotty said, pointing to a stiff ladderback chair. Rick didn't hear him. He was staring at the clerk's desk. Standing behind the desk was the old man who had come to their rescue, Mr. Galt. So, you weren't scared away after all, he greeted them cordially. No, sir, Rick said and added. We didn't have a chance to thank you yesterday. My pleasure, Mr. Galt said. I never did care much for Kuno Stoles. What can I do for you lads? We'd like a room, sir. Call me Captain Lad. Captain Ben Galt used to be. He pointed to a painting of a square-rigged ship that hung behind him. Captain of the Cardi B. Best sealer that ever left port of Crayville, if I do say so myself. The boys inspected the painting, then looked at Captain Galt with new respect. A sealer? Rick asked. Aye. The old man sighed and ran a hand through his sparse gray hair. Them was the days, lad. Crayville was a town then, I'll tell ya. Sealers and whalers coming and going, outbound for the Antarctic or the far Pacific, or heading up the channel with full loads of skins of oil. Time sure have changed. How do you happen to be working here, sir? Scotty asked. Captain Galt's surprisingly useful eyes twinkled. This hotel here is the curse of the Galt's. I own it. He turned to the desk and riffled through some filing cards. Just see it if I have a room for you. In a moment he turned back. Of course I have. I always go through the motions just to make it look business-like. He took a key and led the way to the stairs, talking over his shoulder. I take it you youngins are going to work at the plant. Reckon you'll like it? Yes, sir, Rick hesitated. What was all that business at the restaurant yesterday? That was Kuno Stoll sounded off. He always was a sea lawyer. Now he's taken it on himself to make trouble for the sea mine. Why? Rick asked quickly. Sheer meanness is my guess. One thing's for sure. He don't care a hoot for the fishing grounds. If Cooner ever did a day's honest troll in his life, I ain't heard of it. Cooner? Scotty repeated. That's an odd name. It's his nickname. A Cooner is a kind of nuisance fish that steals bait. Suits him just fine. They had reached the second floor, and Captain Galt opened the door into a room at the rear of the hotel. Rick looked around, pleased. It was spacious, with twin beds, and very clean. Scotty was already testing the mattresses. 
Guess you'll be comfortable. Restaurant is right downstairs, not fancy but good. The vittles will stick to your ribs. Rick found the crumpled telegram message in his pocket and smoothed it out and handed it to the old man. There's something we've wondered about, Captain. Would you know anything about this? Mr. Galt produced steel-rimmed spectacles and read the note through. Then he shook his head emphatically. News to me. Who do you think sent this? Cooner Stoles? Scotty suggested. Not likely. He ain't got that much imagination. Can't guess who it might be. Shucks, I didn't even know you two came in an aeroplane. When Captain Galt had gone, the boys unpacked and stowed their clothes in the ample closets. Then Rick sat down on the bed and grinned at Scotty. Well, we're in for it, for better or worse. Scotty nodded. I hope we don't regret it. We won't, Rick assured him. Listen, there must be some way to check up on that telegram. He went to the old-fashioned telephone on the corner table and picked it up. Captain Galt, he said when the old man answered. Where's the Western Union office in town? There ain't none, was the crisp reply. Nearest is Milford. You want to send a telegram, you have to phone. Want me to connect you? Yes, please, Rick said. When the Milford Western Union office answered, Rick dictated a wire to Spindrift Island, telling the branch the good news about the jobs. Then he asked the clerk, Could you give me some information on a telegram sent to that address last night? It was signed by Mr. Douglas Chambers. The clerk told him to hold the wire, but it was only a moment before Rick got the answer he expected. Well, what's the dope? Scotty asked as he hung up. It was telephoned in from Crayville, Rick replied. Well, no help there, Scotty shrugged. We don't know any more now than we did before. Which is nothing, Rick said, except that Somebody would rather not have us around. Chapter 4. Pressure. Ten Atmospheres. Rick Brandt turned over on his back and a ray of early morning sunlight lanced into his eyes. He awoke blinking and turned away from the light. In the bed next to him he saw Scotty, a sleeping cocoon wound in a sheet. The alarm clock on the bureau told him it was half past six. Today would be their first full day of work at the sea mine. Again, he felt the stir of excitement. Yesterday's tour of the plant with Doug Chambers had fired his enthusiasm. Already he was eager to pitch in. He wanted to see seawater pouring in through the sea inlet to be reduced ultimately to valuable minerals. He had met an old friend yesterday, too. The cub had needed gas and oil on their first stop after lunch had been to find a nearby airport. He knew there was one near Milford, although he had never landed there. He and Scotty took off and headed inland, and in a few moments, the parallel concrete ribbons of the Merritt Parkway, the Great Express Highway from New Haven to New York, unrolled below them. A mile away from the parkway, on the seaward side, they found the airport and landed, discovered that it was run by Steve Hollis, who had taught Rick to fly when he was an instructor for the Civil Air Authority program. It had been fun talking over old times, and Steve had invited him to drop over any time and get in a few hours of flying time in the beautiful Fairchild four-seater biplane that was the airport's special pride. Then, with everything squared away, as Scotty put it, they returned to the plant. 
Doug Chambers, the serious young engineer, took them on an inspection tour, pridefully showing them his brainchild. The sea mine started some distance out at sea, with a bell-shaped pipe opening six feet in diameter. From the sea inlet, as it was called, a four-foot pipe ran back to the pump house. From the pump, the water ran through a maze of pipes to several places where the processing was done. There were three clearly defined processes. One was electrolysis, to be done in the square concrete building called fractionators. The second process was called destructive distillation, and this was done in the two concrete domes. The third part was chemical treatment. The addition of chemicals to the treated water in the tanks would precipitate certain products. The tanks, each 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 10 feet high, were set above ground on platforms of concrete blocks. They were out in the open at the present, but later sheds would be built over them. But the heart of the plant was a guarded secret. It was the building of concrete set off by itself. It was locked in the same manner as a bank vault. Within the building was the nucleus of Doug's process, and only Doug knew what was in there. Tom had been told, of course, but in his whimsical way he said, It's too complicated for a simple soul like me to understand. Shucks, I can't even figure out the chemistry of a cup of coffee. Rick gathered that Tom was the business end. He had put up his own money into the plant and had scouted up more. With Doug's technical brains and Tom's business ability, they had started on a shoestring. They were completely different. Doug was dark, serious, and all business. Tom was blonde, carefree, and perpetually smiling. But both of them were fighters. Rick saw that at once. They'd make a go of this plant or else. A fly buzzed in through the open bedroom window, did a half loop, and landed on a lighting fixture. Rick watched it sleepily and thought about the man with the strangely white face they had seen at the gate on Sunday. They had seen him again last night when they came into the hotel to go to bed. He was in the lobby, reading a letter. It was the first time that Rick had gotten a good look at the man, at his face. The impression of startling whiteness hadn't been wrong. The man's face had no color in it. The skin was like parchment, thinly stretched over the bones of his face, and from it, two dark eyes blazed in him. Rick and Scotty stopped short. The man glanced up. His lips moved soundlessly. Then he jumped to his feet and walked swiftly toward the stairs, dropping an envelope. Rick picked it up, the names on it half-registering, and hurried after him. You dropped this, sir. The man whirled, snatched the envelope, and for an instant his eyes locked almost fearfully, it seemed, with Rick's. Then he ran up the stairs. The name on the envelope had been Fred Lewis. Captain Galt confirmed the identification. He says he's a writer. Been here about a month. Strange cuss. Ever see a face like that before? Looks like somebody skinned him. Well, that was a good description, Rick thought. He wished he knew more about the white-faced man. Rick stretched and threw the covers aside. An expertly aimed pillow caught Scotty on the side of the head. Hit the deck, Rick called. Rise and shine. It's time to go to work. Tell him I quit. Scotty said comfortably, and he started to roll over again. Not on your life, Rick said. He grabbed the covers and tugged. Scotty struggled for a moment and then gave up. 
An hour later, dressed and with a hearty breakfast under their belts, they walked into the Quonset hut. Doug greeted them with a wave of his coffee cup. Morning. Are you all ready for work? Ready and eager, Rick answered. Scotty looked around the hut. Where's Tom? He's gone to Bridgeport. He's going to see some employment agencies and try to hire workers. We've given up on trying to get Crayville people to come to work here. Thanks to Cooner Stoles, Rick murmured. I'm afraid so. Tom suggested that we have some handbills printed, telling the truth about the plant, that it won't poison fish and so on. We'll have them distributed and see if we can't overcome some of this ridiculous prejudice. But meanwhile, we need workers. It's going to cost you a lot to bring him in from Bridgeport, Rick commented. Doug's lips tightened. Yeah, tell me about it. Too much. But there's nothing else we can do, Rick. You can help me finish wiring, though, today. The electronic controls for the pressure domes. I want to test them this afternoon. Scotty, you said you can drive a powerboat. I want you to help Tony. Go out to the sea inlet and check the filter screen. The morning passed rapidly while they worked on the intricate control panel. Rick watched Doug with respect. He knew what he was doing all right. The automatic electronic controls controlled both heat and pressure within the concrete domes. They were very complex. Once, he crawled in through the turret-like door of one of them to check a thermostat and saw that the interior was like that of an igloo, but coated with something hard and thick and glossy. When he asked about it, Doug answered, That's something that I dreamed up. It's plastic. We applied it while it was hot, and it hardened into a firm coating that's not only chemical-proof, but adds strength to the domes. And it'll take a lot of pressure. More than ten atmospheres. Rick thought that over. He recalled that one atmosphere was fourteen and seven-tenths pounds to the square inch. That was normal pressure at sea level. So ten atmospheres were 147 pounds to the square inch. Wow. When Scotty returned with the dark, wiry foreman, he stopped to say a word to Rick before trotting off to clean out one of the big sediment tanks. Not a hard job, but that Tony is a queer cuss. Not any more sociable than a wild bull. By lunchtime, the last wire had been soldered into place. Doug straightened up with a relieved sigh. There she is. You're a neat workman, Rick. You'll be a lot of help. Well, let's have lunch, then we'll give this thing a test. Rick, pleased at Doug's praise, took the opportunity to ask questions. What do you expect to get out of the seawater? And how do you do it? Golly, I never saw such complex electronic circuits. Even Dad would have to think about it for a while before he could figure them out. I doubt that, Doug smiled. Don't forget, your dad probably knows more about electronics than any living man. But to answer your questions, we expect to get metals, largely. It's a lot of treasure in the sea, you know. For instance, if we could get all the gold, silver, and platinum out of a single cubic mile of seawater, we could build a plant ten times the size of this one and have money left over. Rick whistled. Are you going after gold and silver? Yeah, to some extent. Our main interest will be in aluminum, magnesium, and copper, but we hope to extract enough precious metals to pay for a large part of our operating cost. But how do you do it? 
I understand about the electrolysis and stuff like that, but I still can't figure out how you'll get metals. Doug laughed. I'll tell you in detail on the day you finally graduate from college. It's a little complex. But you could give me an idea of how it works, Rick persisted. Doug scratched his head. I don't know how to put it in simple terms. You see, the metals we want are in solution. That is, they're dissolved in the seawater. But they're not in pure form. They're compounds, like copper sulfate. That's copper and sulfur together. Or gold chloride. That's gold and chloride together. Well, I've had to figure out the electronic structure of the compound molecules, and I've made up a table of what I call electronic coefficients. Okay, never mind, Rick said laughing. My head is aching already. I guess I'd just better keep my eyes open and see what I can see. Good idea, Doug grinned. I'll try to explain as we go along. The boys had intended on hiking into town for lunch, but Doug invited them to share a simple meal of canned soup, crackers, and milk. Tony ate with them, sipping his soup noisily and saying nothing. His voice is a baritone, Scotty noted later, but he drinks his soup in a tenor key. They ate hastily, anxious to get back to testing the domes. Doug told Tony to turn on the pump and suggested that the boys go along to see how it was done while he rechecked the pressure data. He would join them at the dome. As they left Doug and walked toward the pump house, Rick tried to engage Tony in conversation. Have you been in the construction business long? Yeah, Tony said shortly. Around here? Rick persisted. No. Rick gave up and they walked on in silence the rest of the way. The pump house, a large wooden shed, contained a gasoline engine geared to a large rotary pump. The big sea inlet pipe ran in one side and smaller pipes ran out the other. Tony opened the valves leading to the pressure domes. Scotty found the engine starter and the switch and tried to get the engine going without success. Choke it a little, Rick suggested, pointing to the choke wire. No, Tony growled. Like this, see? He put his whole hand over the carburetor air inlet, closing it off. Then he pushed the starter button, and the engine roared into life. Choke don't work, he said briefly. He shifted the gear that threw power into the pump, and they heard the blades turn inside the circular housing. In a moment, they could hear water gurgling. Well, let's go, Rick said. He and Scotty hurried to the domes, leaving Tony at the pump house. Doug was standing by the domes, and the boys joined him. Out of the sea inlet, the waters of Long Island Sound gurgled and swirled. Doug made a final check on the circular door of Pressure Dome 1, then walked back to where the boys were watching the instruments. There was the sound of roaring water, audible even through the thick concrete. For a while, the needle of the pressure gauge remained still. Then, with agonizing slowness, it began to climb. Two atmospheres, Doug said. His voice sounded loud. The dome was full and the pressure was building. Already the mysterious processes that Rick only dimly understood were starting to take place. He watched the pressure gauge waning. He couldn't have said why he was so very tense. Scotty shifted from one foot to the other. Five atmospheres, Doug said. They fell silent. Even the gurgling of water had ceased. Only the thrum of the pump engine broke the silence. 
Eight! Doug said. The needle quivered and advanced a half point. If they were in the dome now, the pressure would crush them. What was happening to the seawater? Nine! The needle crept ahead. Nine and a... A tremendous gust of pressure blew Rick back and sent him tumbling head over heels. Something smashed into his ribs, driving the air out of him. He collapsed in a heap, gasping for breath. Pain ran up his left arm. Through blurred eyes, he saw Scotty stagger. Saw Doug hurtling back, driven by inexorable force. And concrete rained about him. The dome had exploded. <laughs>